All right, good morning, everybody. So, as Keith said earlier, we are starting a new sermon series today. Our series in Acts has finally completed after 14 weeks. And uh, the series that we're starting today is called Conversations with Jesus. Uh, We're going to be looking at the places in the Gospels where Jesus has a dialogue with somebody, a real back-and-forth dialogue. And the passage that we're looking at today is probably the most famous dialogue that Jesus has. It's with a man named Nicodemus. And this dialogue is famous for a very good reason, because it's here that Jesus talks about the necessity of being born again. Uh, That phrase, born again, that's one that we hear quite a bit in the Christian subculture, right? Um, it's, uh, It's a phrase that people use to identify themselves, like religiously, right? I am a born again, people will will say that. Uh, For better or for worse, it's a phrase that's sometimes used to refer to a political constituency. You know, what do the born agains think about about something? And in fact, today, uh, estimates say that about one in three Americans considers themselves born again, self-identifies as a born again person. And so this dialogue that we're about to look at is really important because it helps us to understand what it actually means to be born again. Because if we're going to use that phrase a lot, we should be using it the way Jesus meant, right? Not necessarily the way our culture sees it. So it's important for us to ask, does our perception of what born again means line up with what Jesus taught? So that's one of the main things we're going to be asking ourselves as we look at this passage. Now, I want you to imagine that this conversation that we're about to look at is the opening scene in a movie. And you know how at the beginning of some movies, uh, a quote will show up on the screen? Usually it's a a quote from an an artist or a philosopher or a scientist. It's some sort of quote that's profound, and it's supposed to get you thinking about the themes that are going to be in the movie, right? In some way, it's supposed to prepare you for what you're about to see. Well, I think that if this dialogue we're about to look at in Scripture was the opening scene to a movie, uh, this quote would be the perfect way to start the movie. There would be a black screen, and then these words would fade in. And it would say, Say to the house of Israel, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so we linger on that for a little while. I'm playing movie director this morning. I'm going to do this throughout the the sermon. We linger on that for a little while, and then this note fades in. The word of the Lord through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, 22 through 26. Linger a little longer? 620 years ago. Ooh. Right? And as as that quote remains on the screen, we start to hear the howling of wind and, and the drizzle of rain. And then the quote fades to black, and then we cut to a man standing in the rain at night, and he's knocking on a door. To a house. Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to John chapter 3. 
I'm going to be reading from John chapter 3 while taking a few artistic liberties uh, throughout the rest of this morning. So if you want to follow along, that's where we're going to be. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Okay, so remember, Nicodemus is knocking on the door at night. He's, he's soaking wet, and then the door opens, and we see Jesus is behind it. And he looks at Nicodemus, the water dripping down his face, and Nicodemus says to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Now remember, the Pharisees had not been kind to Jesus, right? Because the Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to their power. And so this is very significant that a leader of the Pharisees, not just a Pharisee, but a leader of the Pharisees is coming to Jesus at night and saying, look, we know that you're from God. Not, I know you're from God, but we all really know that you're from God. So I imagine that in our movie, Jesus looks at him a little skeptically, and, and then he sticks his head out and looks both ways to see if anyone else is standing out there. And then he silently motions him to come into this dimly lit house, and he motions for him to sit down at the table along with him. Okay? And both Nicodemus and Jesus sit down, and Jesus looks at him very seriously, and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now you might be wondering, why does Jesus say that? Because that's not a statement that really seems to follow from what Nicodemus just said, right? A statement that would seem uh, to follow more naturally would be something like, uh, yes, I am a teacher from God. You're correct in saying that, Nicodemus. But instead, without any smooth segue, he starts talking about being born again. So why does he do that? Well, my best guess is that what's going on here is Jesus is taking Nicodemus at his word. Right? Nicodemus just said, we know you're a teacher from God. And, and so then Jesus is like, all right, well, if that's what you think, I'm going to teach you. Because even though you are a teacher of Israel, even though you are elderly, you're religious, you're moral, there's something very important that you don't realize. And what you don't realize is that in order for you to experience the kingdom of God, in order for you to really see it, you need to be born again. Something needs to happen to you that hasn't happened yet. You think I'm a teacher? I'm going to teach you now. So Jesus tells him that. And then I imagine that Nicodemus looks at him with this look of confusion. Because when Nicodemus hears those words, born again, you know what he thinks of? He thinks of converting to Judaism. Because in those days, if a Gentile converted to Judaism, they were regarded as a newborn child, someone who was born again. And so here's Jesus telling a guy who is a religious leader among the Jews that he needs to become a Jew. And so Nicodemus thinks, well, you can't mean that, because obviously I am a Jew. So instead, Nicodemus decides to take him very, very literally. And he says, how can a man be born again when he's old? 
Uh, surely he cannot return to his mother's womb to be born again. You see what he's doing there? He's trying to get Jesus to explain himself. He's thinking, Jesus, you can't mean that I need to become a Jew because I'm already a Jew. And obviously, you can't be saying literally that I need to return to my mother's womb because that's ridiculous. So, come on, tell me what, you're, what you really mean. And so Jesus answers him. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. All right, so what's this about? Well, notice, the second time that Jesus speaks, he starts by saying exactly the same thing as the first time, right? If you compare the two verses, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born. All those words are exactly the same. It sounds like, at first, Jesus is just repeating himself verbatim. But the second time he speaks, he adds one thing on to clarify what he means, right? Instead of just saying born again, the second time he says born of water and the spirit. And what that tells us is that to be born again is the same thing as to be born of water and the spirit. Now, it's very common for us to say to each other, well, I've been born again. And that means that it should also be possible for us to say, I am born of water and the Spirit. But we don't usually say that to each other, right? So we have to ask ourselves, okay, what does that mean? What's Jesus talking about when he says born of water and the Spirit? That's not what we usually say. Well, one thing we know for sure is it can't be referring to physical birth, okay? Born of water and the Spirit is different from physical birth. And the way that we know that is because of what Jesus said there. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. It's it's a little confusing there, but it's like Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, come on, don't confuse those two things. I start talking about being born again, and you start talking about returning to your mother's womb. Come on. That's, that's a physical understanding of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a spiritual understanding. Okay? It's not a physical, fleshly way of thinking about being born again. It's a, it's a spiritual one. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So back to that question. What does it mean to be born of water and of the Spirit? If it's not physical, if neither of those things are physical, what does it mean? Well, this is the point where we have to remember our quote that opened the movie, right? The word of the Lord that came through the prophet Ezekiel 620 years ago. I will, sprink I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Okay, see, this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being born of water and of the spirit. See, there's the water part. Sorry, that's in red. That doesn't look very good, but... There's the water part, sprinkle clean water on you, cleanse you from all your impurities. This is God's promise to the nation of Israel. And then there's the spirit part. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Both right there. Um, so, this is the way I think we need to look at it. The water part of being born again is being forgiven. It's having your sins washed away. It's being cleansed of all your impurity. Okay? 
And then the spirit part of being born again is quite literally being filled with the spirit of God and then being transformed by him because you are filled with, with his spirit. You know, if you had the power to take your spirit and put it in somebody else, then that person would then love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. They'd laugh at the same things that you laugh about and cry about the same things that you cry about, right? And that's what happens when God puts his spirit in us. When God puts his spirit in, in, in us, we start to love the things he loves, you know, goodness, grace, forgiveness, mercy, justice. And we start to hate the things that he hates, injustice, cruelty. We start to become like him. And that's what it means to be born again, to be born of the spirit, to be filled with his spirit in a way so that your attitudes and your behaviors become transformed. Now, I imagine that at this moment, Nicodemus would still be looking at Jesus with a confused look on his face. Because the next thing Jesus says is, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Clearly, Jesus can tell by looking at Nicodemus that Nicodemus is surprised. But Jesus says, you know, Nicodemus, you're a, relig a religious leader. You should know the scriptures. You should know the promises that were made in, in the book of Ezekiel. And, and you should know that in order to see the kingdom of God, you need to be cleansed of your sin. And you need to have your heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. You need to have God's spirit in you. You need to be born again. And then I imagine that at this moment, Nicodemus and Jesus are kind of sitting there awkwardly, and they're having a moment of silence. Nicodemus doesn't know what to say. He's confused. He's probably a little bit offended. And all we can hear, again, is the sound of the wind and the sound of the rain outside. And as we hear that, then Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, why does Jesus say this? Well, if I had to guess, it's because Jesus knows what Nicodemus is thinking about right now. And he knows that Nicodemus is thinking, who is born of the Spirit? See, because before now, Nicodemus would have assumed that if anyone is truly part of God's kingdom, it would be someone like him, right? Someone who is a descendant of Abraham, a good Jew, educated, religious, moral, respected. But now Jesus seems to be talking as if none of that really matters because he's telling him, you must be born again. Jesus is speaking as if something still needs to happen to Nicodemus that hasn't happened in order for him to experience the kingdom of God. And so it makes sense that Nicodemus would be wondering, wait, if, if it's questionable whether I'm in the kingdom of God, then who's actually in the kingdom? And then Jesus gives the answer to that question. The answer is that who's in the kingdom is as unpredictable as the wind You see, what some people do is they, they look at this verse and they say, well, the point of this verse is that God just kind of chooses who gets saved and who doesn't. He, he kind of chooses to like some people and just ignore other people. But I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is saying here. 
The point Jesus is trying to make is that Nicodemus cannot predict who is in God's kingdom and who isn't. Even though Nicodemus thinks he knows what kind of people are part of God's kingdom and what people aren't, he's got no clue. What Jesus is saying is just as Nicodemus cannot predict whether the wind is going to blow or which way it's going to blow, he also cannot predict who is going to be born again. Because being born again is not an experience that only reputable descendants of Abraham have. It's something that tax collectors have, something that prostitutes can have, something that lepers can have, and Gentiles all over the world will experience. That's what the Gospels tell us. That's what the New Testament shows us. You know, sometimes the people that you least expect to be born again are. Back when I was in campus ministry, I used to attend this discussion group. I've talked about this multiple times here, a discussion group for uh, atheists and agnostics. It was called the Freethinkers Club. And I would go, and everyone knew I was the campus minister. I wasn't covert. I was out in the open. And uh, one night, I went there, and I met a guy named Nick. And Nick and I were having a conversation, and I told him one of the reasons that I choose to believe in God. And... And one of the reasons I explained to him is very rational argument called the moral argument, uh, which is basically the argument that if there is no God, then there is no such thing as moral truth. There is no such thing as right and wrong. There is no such thing as good and evil. Because if the universe is not the product of purpose and intention, which that can only be true if there's a God, right, then there is no way that things are supposed to be. There can only be a way that things are supposed to be if there is a purpose and intention behind the universe. But if there is no God, there is no way that things are supposed to be. There is nothing that is truly good or truly evil. Things just are. And people disagree over what they like, right? But there's no such thing as real right and wrong. And I said, I explained this to Nick, and he said, I agree with you. That's true. If there is no God, there is no such thing as moral truth. We're on the same page. And then I said to him, but see, Nick, I believe too strongly that certain things are evil and certain things are good not to believe in God. You know, when I think of something like the Holocaust, that is too disturbing to me. It's too awful for for me to think, oh, well, the Nazis and the Allied forces, they just had disagreement over what they preferred. You know, I have to believe I cannot bring myself not to believe that the Holocaust wasn't a violation of some deeper law than just human laws or human preferences. And then Nick said something to me like this. Well, I can understand why you feel that way, but there's no proof that God exists or that moral truth really exists, and I'm okay with that. And he said, you know what? I actually take comfort in believing that life is ultimately meaningless and nothing means anything. Now, if you would ask me after that conversation, do you think Nick is someone who's going to become born again? I would have said, well, I wouldn't bet on it, right? And I think that if Nicodemus had known Nick, Nicodemus would have said, no, (laughs) there's no way. I mean, he's not even a descendant of Abraham. But none of us can predict where the wind of the Spirit is going to blow. 
because a few months after that conversation, I ran into Nick in Starbucks on campus, and he came up to me, and he was enthusiastic, and he shook my hand, and he said, he said, I'm doing really well. I've been doing a lot of reading, and I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. And he proceeded to pull out of his backpack several large books about the history of Christianity that he was legitimately reading through, <laughs> a book on theology, and a big Bible. He said, I'm thinking about becoming Christian, Eastern Orthodox, but becoming Christian. And it wasn't long after that that Nick placed his faith in Christ. He came up to me when I was in the student union, and he said, I realized in the shower today that I believe in the resurrection, so I guess I'm a Christian now. And everything started to change after that. Um, I went to his baptism, uh, and he went, he went on to go to seminary, too. So he was an atheist and a moral nihilist, and within a year or two, uh, he was a seminary-attending Eastern Orthodox baptized Christian. Now, the wind blows where it pleases. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So, getting back to our movie scene. Nicodemus hears all, all of this about how you must be born again and about how it's a spiritual birth and you can't predict who experiences it and, and who doesn't. And then in response to all of this, he says, how can this be? And this question is kind of funny to me because really, I'm not sure what the this is that Nicodemus is talking about. How can this be? I almost see him as throwing his hands up because it's just about everything. How can this be? You know, the question could be, how can the spirit be so unpredictable? Or the question could be, how can this spiritual birth occur? Or to put it a different, different way, how can we actually be cleansed of our sins and have God's spirit put in us? Or it could be a little different. It could be more personal. It could be, how can this be? How can you tell me, a Jewish religious leader, that I must be born again? So I'm not positive what the this is in this question. Uh, and you know what? I'm not even sure Nicodemus knew what the this was in that question. I think Nicodemus was just really confused, probably a little offended, because this Jesus seems to be saying that he needs to be born again just as much as anybody else. And so not knowing what to say, he just, how can this be? And then to help Nicodemus understand what he's been saying, Jesus recalls a story from the Old Testament, a story that Nicodemus definitely would have been familiar with. Uh, if we skip ahead to verse 14, you can see where he, he talks about it. Uh, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. All right, so let's talk about this story about Moses and snakes in the desert. You know, I think it's kind of ironic that probably the verse in the Bible that 
is most familiar to people is John 3.16, right, which we just read. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But most people, if you say, do you know the story about Moses and the snakes in the desert? They'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And yet, ironically, it is that story that Jesus uses to set up John 3.16, to make the point. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, like this. Like what? Like the story about Moses and the snakes in the desert. So what is that story? Well, if you want to look it up yourself sometime, you can. It's in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn to it right now. I'm just going to recap it uh, from from memory. But if you want to look at it sometime, I I encourage you to do that. But the story goes like this. Uh, When the Israelites were wandering in the desert after God brought them up out of Egypt, there was a period of time where they went through an area that had a lot of venomous snakes. And a lot of Israelites were getting bit by these snakes, and they were dying. And so... Moses prayed on behalf of the people, and God said, okay, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to make an image of a snake. It's weird, right? Make an image of a snake and put it on a pole. And then if people get bit by the snakes, what they need to do is look at the pole. They look at the pole, then they won't die. And so that's what Moses does, and sure enough, it works. The Israelites get, get bit by the snakes, they look at the pole, and if they look at the pole, the venom loses its power, and they live. So why does Jesus bring this up after Nicodemus says, how can this be? Well, what, what Jesus wants Nicodemus to realize is that being born again works a lot like that. Like the Israelites in the desert, Uh, we also have been infected by a venom. It's the venom of sin. And that is a venom that leads to everlasting death. Left to run its natural course, it kills us. But God has provided an antidote. God sent his one and only son, Jesus, and Jesus was lifted up on the cross like the snake was lifted up in the desert. And all we need to do to be saved from our sin is to look up at him. To look and trust that Jesus on the cross is the remedy for the venom within us, the sin within us. You know, and that sounds too simple and too good to be true, but that's really all it takes. That is how we are born again. That's how we're cleansed, and that's how God's spirit comes to fill us. We look to the cross and we trust that Jesus is our remedy. Now, even though that remedy seems so easy for us, there are things that keep us from experiencing it. Uh, One of those reasons is that many of us just don't want to admit that we even need a remedy in the first place. You know, we don't want to admit that we actually have a problem. The reason the Israelites looked up at the pole with the snake on it is because they, they knew I'm dying and this is my last resort, right? So they knew they had a problem, but some of us don't want to even acknowledge that we have the venom in us in the first place, that we have the sin in us. If we're prideful, it can be a very hard thing to recognize that we need an antidote that we can't provide on our own. Another way that pride keeps us from looking to Jesus for salvation is is that it makes us want to earn our own salvation. It makes us want to save ourselves. 
Uh, we like to think that we can come up with the antidote on our own. And I think this fact about human nature is one of the reasons why Jesus chose the metaphor of being born again in order to describe what needs to happen to us. Because when a birth happens, who does the work? The mother or the baby? Any moms in here? Who does the work? The mother or the baby? The mom. The baby does like 25% of the work though, right? <laughs> no, it's pretty one-sided, right? Mom does the work. And the same thing is true when it comes to us experiencing the kingdom of God. Okay? In order for us to experience the, the kingdom of God, in order for us to be born again, the real work that needs to be done in order to make that possible is done by God. It's not, it's not done by us. And if we try to do it on our own, it just doesn't work. Here's one other thing that I think can keep us from looking to Jesus on the cross. This is one that I don't think you hear talked about as much, but I do think it happens. Um, one thing that keeps us from looking to Jesus for salvation is just disgust with the whole idea that someone would need to suffer and die in such a horrible way in order to save us. Um, you know, some of us hear the words, look to the cross, and we think, I don't want to look to the cross. The cross is ugly, it's bloody, it's disgusting. And if you think that, you're not wrong. <laughs> you know, the cross is offensive, it's ugly, it's, it's disgusting. And I think that's why God told Moses to put an image of a snake on that pole. When you think about it, that was a, that was a weird choice, right? But if God wanted Moses to foreshadow Jesus so that we'd understand Jesus when he came, it makes a lot of sense. It seems like it's an odd choice because it's like, okay, well, if you want to be saved from the snake, look at the image of the thing that you need to be saved from. But see, it's the same way with the cross. We look at the cross, this ugly, terrible cross, and, and we're looking at the thing that we need to be saved from, right? From death. But when we look at it and we trust that it is sufficient to save us, we are born again. So, the way I would put it, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus' suffering on the cross makes it possible for us to be born again. That is what Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand. Because Jesus is suffering on the cross, even though it's an ugly thing, it's not just an ugly thing. It's how we're born again. The way I would put it is, when we look at the cross, we should see God in labor pains so that we might be born as children of God. You know, I realize it might be hard to understand exactly how that works, but you know, you don't have to totally understand how Jesus' suffering makes it possible for us to be children of God in order to believe that it is what we need to become children of God. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't understand. I don't understand how my car works, but I still can trust it enough to get in it and drive here, right? You don't have to understand it all, but you just have to trust it. 
but I think this analogy could be helpful for us, this analogy of labor pains. On the cross, we see God in labor to give birth to us as children of his kingdom, right? Children who have been cleansed of all of our sin and filled with his spirit. And what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know and what he wants all of us to know is that if we will just look to him and trust that his labor pains were enough to give us new birth, we will see the kingdom of God now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, this can be a a hard conversation for us to wrap our minds around. Maybe we feel a little bit like Nicodemus, a little confused. How can this be? But God, I I pray that you would help us to, to understand it, that you would help us to understand it and be changed by it, God. And we thank you that the thing that is most needed to enter the kingdom of God, the thing that is truly needed, is is something that you have done for us. And God, I pray that we would look to you, that we would trust that your death on the cross is what we need to be born again, and that we would experience the water and the Spirit, Lord, the cleansing of our sins, and the transformation of our our spirits to be more like you. God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your one and only Son, that we would not perish. And we pray, Lord, that that truth would be one that uh, transforms us and sustains us and gives us joy in life now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.